Hi, and welcome to Wrongful, a podcast where we look at cases of potential wrongful convictions. Follow along as we introduce you to our first case, the trial of Zachariah Anderson. I have a quick retraction from our previous episode. It was brought to my attention that the night of April 25th, 2020 is not Zach's version of events. Zach has not explained what occurred this night and maintains his innocence. Hi, and welcome to Wrongful, Episode 2, Missing Man. In our last episode, we explored the background of Zachariah Anderson, who was convicted in March for stalking, hiding a corpse, and the murder of a man named Rosalio Gutierrez. We explored some of the history between him and his ex, Sadie Beecham, and saw how their custody case started to take a toxic turn. We also explored the accusation that he was stalking Sadie. But Zach was also accused of stalking the new man in her life, Rosalio, as well. In this episode, we want to explore more about the missing man, Rosalio Gutierrez, who was known by many of those close to him as Junior. We don't have much information about his background other than what is public record, but we have been able to learn from statements of those close to him that he was well-loved, He had many friends who described him as a great person and a great father who loved his kids very much. For any skeletons in the closet we may find, we've also found statements expressing nothing but admiration for him. We want to acknowledge that Rosalia was a victim in this, and it's not our goal to disparage him or victim shame. Just as if any of us had our entire lives under a microscope, there may be things that don't portray us in the best light. We definitely saw this with Zach and Sadie as well. But in order for us to fully investigate the case of his disappearance, we need to fully immerse ourselves and leave no stone unturned. In this episode, we explore Rosalio's background, relationships, and the events of the days prior to his disappearance. Rosalio Gutierrez Jr. was born April 10, 1980, to Rosalio Gutierrez Sr. and Celia Gutierrez. The couple divorced when Rosalio was only two years old, and he was then raised by Celia as a single mother living in Kenosha, Wisconsin. According to Celia, his bio dad ceased to have any relationship with him from that point forward. Celia would remarry Eugene Patterson when Rosalia was around the age of 16 and Rosalia would consider Eugene a father figure. His mother describes their relationship as being very close, citing that they spoke at least two to three times per week. We kept a very close contact with one another. Uh, Text, phone calls, video chats. He would always keep in communication with me. He would always respond to my phone calls. And if he couldn't, he'd say, can't talk now, mom. I'll call later. He would text me. He was a self-professed mama's boy. He and his mother remained very much attached throughout his adulthood. Even though she would move to Colorado, she would remain in close contact with Rosalio and assist him financially. This included sharing a joint bank account, purchasing him a truck, assisting him in getting his apartment, and helping with rent. In 2001, Rosalio began dating Christy Raditz Ortiz, and they would have a son together in 2008. At some point after that, their relationship ended and he began dating Kayla Petty, who he would be with for several years before they welcomed a daughter in 2012. Despite his relationships with the mother of his children not working out, Celia says his children were the most important thing to him and that he wanted to be involved in their lives, unlike his own father. Rosalio was also a huge baseball fan, 
specifically the Chicago Cubs, and he shared that love of baseball with his son. In the following clip, Chrissy describes the relationship between Rosalio and his son. Talking about baseball, was that a, a lifelong passion for uh, Rosalio? It was. And was he happy when your son also picked up that same kind of passion for the game? Yeah. What kind of things revolving around baseball would they do together? They would go to they go out in the yard and play catch together. They would go to um, baseball games when they could. They would go. They would watch the the World League Little League World Series and that on TV. They would um, do practices. He was always up there for practice. He was always there for his games. They would go beyond. They'd go early, stay late. Um, those types of things. And your son's actually pretty good at baseball, from what I hear. Is he that is, yeah. And so was he both at back in 2020 on a local Little League team, but also on some travel league teams? He was on a, a local Little League team, I think, uh, Kiwanis, and was getting ready to start the, the traveling team. And did Rosalio uh, take on a coaching role for that Little League baseball team? He did. And was that something that uh, Rosalio was excited about? Yes, very excited. His son and Christy lived very close to Rosalio, so he was able to see his son often, about three to four times per week. Rosalio was also involved in his daughter's activities, dance, gymnastics, and cheer, and he had custody of her every other weekend. Rosalio held a number of jobs, many in the food service industry. From his Facebook profile, we were able to learn that he also studied criminal justice at the University of Wisconsin Parkside. This would lead to his next job working for the Wisconsin State Public Defender's Office. He worked here for a few years before going back to working in food service. He would then start dating Eileen Knoll, who worked in pharmaceuticals, but also ran a business buying, selling, renting, and rehabbing properties. The two would eventually break up, but would remain on good terms as she would contract Rosalio to help with her property units. Rosalio continued working for Eileen up until his May 17th disappearance. Much of what we have learned about Rosalio's background came from what was testified about him in trial and from reviewing his social media. However, we wanted to know what other information was out there if someone had looked him up. This information may also help us to understand the possible struggles Rosalio was facing at the time of his disappearance and other motives at play. While there's no evidence that Zach and Rosalio ever came face to face, police would find one piece of evidence that would lead them to believe that Zach was stalking Rosalio. This is a file on Zach's computer, labeled with Rosalio's name. We discussed in our previous episode about custody cases and how it is common practice for those involved to compile evidence to help their case and could explain why Zach may have had this file, not because he was obsessively stalking anyone. In the following clip, family law attorney David Helms spoke about this on his YouTube channel, MLS, Making Law Simple. So Zach had a file on his computer of Rosalio Gutierrez, which was essentially Facebook screenshots of Rosalio and a couple other public documents. But remember, at the same time, Zach and Sadie are going through a custody battle. And as a family law attorney, I've often told my clients to go gather information on the other individual if they're coming around your kids and you don't think it's appropriate for them to be around. Go get that information yourself so you don't have to pay me or a private investigator to gather that information. The creation of this file leads us to the question, why was Zach concerned about Rosalio? What could he have possibly learned from public records? 
And is any of the information helpful in determining whether other motives could have been at play in the disappearance? While performing a Google search on Rosalio for any relevant information, we came across a case article that mentioned his name. It involved his time as an assistant manager at the Kenosha IHOP. The case details that he was fired for engaging in poker games during working hours, but would then be rehired to work at a Racine IHOP as an assistant manager. He would eventually resign from his position May 22nd of 2005. The following day, some of the other assistant managers would inform the district manager that several underage female servers were alleging that he had sexually harassed and propositioned them. This would lead to the general manager being terminated from her position. She would then file a suit against MHR, the corporation operating the Racine IHOP, due to her belief that she was wrongfully terminated. The details of the allegations against Rosalia would be outlined in that suit, and while we could not find anything proving his guilt of these allegations, the information cited could have been a concern for anyone who came across it, especially someone with a preteen daughter. We also found details on CCAP regarding his child support payments, which seemed to have become an issue. Following his breakup with Kayla in 2016, the court would establish the child support he was to pay along with his child support to Christy for their son. According to public records in the circuit court, Motions were filed against Rosalio in 2019 for failure to pay child support to both Christy and Kayla. A hearing was held on January 13, 2020, and the state reported that he had not made child support payments for the last three months. It states that Rosalio admitted he had the money to make the payments but failed to do so. He was found to be in contempt of court for willfully and deliberately disobeying the court's order and was ordered to 120 days of consecutive jail time with Huber release for employment which basically means you're able to leave jail to go to work or job search. On January 15th, the Kenosha Sheriff's Police Department was ordered to apprehend him for that jail time. But we already know that during what would have been that 120 days of time, he was meeting up with Sadie and possibly others for dates and seeing his kids. So did he use the Huber work release hours to spend time with people instead of working or job hunting? Or did they actually never apprehend him as ordered? If so, why not? We did mention that Rosalio had worked for the public defender's office prior to this, so is it possible he had the right connections and was granted some sort of favor? Ironically, his proposed term in jail would have ended just two days before his disappearance. He was also struggling with rent. According to the property manager, who, in a police report, described Rosalio as becoming increasingly rude in the past six months due to being behind on his rent and having been served eviction notices to either pay or move out within five days. Although we can sympathize with him if he was having some major financial struggles, he did admit that he had the money to pay child support and still didn't. This does make us question if he struggled to uphold his financial obligations to others in his life as well. Michael Campbell called him the money guy in trial, but where was all the money going if he wasn't paying his rent or child support? As we know, disagreements over money have historically been known to incite crime and other acts of violence. His previous charges on CCAP, which is where evidence shows Zach had looked him up, we found several instances of disorderly conduct, retail theft, operating a vehicle with a suspended license, an instance of domestic abuse battery, another instance of battery, suffocation and strangulation, and some minor speeding concerns. Based on one of the records, we learned that several of the domestic abuse charges happened around the time that Kayla got pregnant, but would be dismissed by prosecutors and a no-contact order would be put in place. Rosalio pled guilty to felony bail jumping instead. At the time, Rosalio was allowed to have supervised visits for the prenatal appointments and for the birth of their daughter, 
We do want to make it clear that most of these charges and allegations against Rosalio, including all of the domestic abuse charges, were dismissed and did not result in any guilty verdicts. We do strongly believe in the presumption of innocence, and therefore, we will maintain Rosalio's innocence in any of the charges in which he was not found guilty, and ask that you do the same. The reason for us outlining his criminal history is twofold. One, because the state proposed that Zach had no other reason to be gathering information on Rosalio other than to stalk and eventually murder him. And two, because this history is relevant to the police investigation. If Rosalio had a concerning pattern of conduct or behaviors, it would be reasonable and expected for the police to investigate the people closest to Rosalio in connection to his disappearance. I do want to pose the question again here as well. How did Rosalio have so many charges dismissed? As we mentioned, even his contempt of court orders went unserved from what we can tell. Who might have been protecting Rosalio? Either way, in the context of May of 2020, Rosalio had a lot going on. He seemed to be juggling several romantic relationships. Not only was he dating Sadie, but he was also talking to at least two other women he met on a dating site, Kim Lavora and Narita Macias. He still seemed to be close with several ex-girlfriends and saw many of them within a few days leading up to his disappearance. And, as we just discussed, he was in the midst of some financial struggles. He was behind on child support, which he was facing legal ramifications for. He owed money to fellow contractor and friend Michael Campbell. Rosalio had also recently had a rift with his colleague Dan Spear after he underpaid him for a tile surround job. I actually helped Dan Spear on a job for Eileen. And um, I don't know any other jobs that they did. Now, with Mr. <clears throat> Gutierrez owing you money um, for the work that you've done, do you remember admitting to law enforcement that the only times you really ever got mad at Mr. Gutierrez was over money owed? The only time I got mad at Mr. Gutierrez was the situation with Dan and Junior. What happened with that situation? Um, Junior had him do a tile surround for $150. And why did that make you angry? If you understand and know pricing, that's terrible. What, what would the norm, and this was something that he was supposed to pay Dan Spear for? Right, which I had to help because he didn't have the tools or a vehicle to get to the job. And what normally, what type, how much would the pay be for a job like that? Objection irrelevant, Judge. What we're now talking about is whether Rosalia Gutierrez paid enough money to Dan Spear uh, Irrelevant. Whether he has knowledge or not, irrelevant. What, yeah, what is the relevance? Again, the relevance is going to come out with detectives and the theory of the defense about not investigating people. There are several messages from Dan Spear to Mr. Gutierrez that was provided by the state to the defense. This witness has also testified that that was the only time he got angry. It was a tricky situation. That text message string is a very aggressive text message string about monies owed from Mr. Gutierrez to Dan Spear. Sounds well, like well, if you were addressing, if you were questioning him uh, specifically about the incident, but I, I he was clearly under many sources of stress. And I imagine hearing that Zach had been looking into him didn't feel great. I'm sure he didn't want Sadie to know all of these things from his past either. So when he had mentioned to Sadie that he knew people who could potentially break Zach's leg, is this a glimpse into an even darker world that Rosalio could have been involved with? I know I don't know many people who would be willing to break someone else's leg for me. Who are these people? 
one theory we've heard is that perhaps Rosalio did reach out to old friends to rough up Zack, as he told Sadie, and maybe the friends turned on him instead. If he knew people in organized crime, let's say, or even unorganized crime, asking for favors can often come at a price, especially if you owe the wrong people money. Of course, that's all pure speculation, but it did raise some interesting thoughts considering his history. As you can see, though, much of this information is publicly searchable and would have been easily found by Zach as well. It could make sense that if Zach was looking into the background of someone newly present in his children's lives, he might have some concerns. As we mentioned in episode 1, one of the ways of obtaining custody is by proving the unfitness of the other parent, which includes any new relationships they may have. One Wisconsin Law Office website even states the burden of proof rests with the parent making the charge, and you will need to gather evidence that supports your position, such as medical files documenting injuries, photographs or video files of abuse, police reports, and any relevant correspondence like emails, texts, social media posts, etc., so in the context of an upcoming custody case, it could make sense why Zach might even save some of the information about Rosalia in a file to later present to the court to show Sadie may not have been making the best personal choices concerning their children. We'll expand more on our thoughts about how Rosalia's history may have come into play with this situation, but I want to get back to where we left off in our last episode. Previously, we were discussing Wednesday, May 13th, 2020, when Sadie accused Zach of following her to Kenosha and repeating back her conversation with Rosalia. Zach and Sadie continued to argue regarding the phone incident. Sadie still believed that he was tracking her, and he continued to deny doing so. Sadie is convinced that's not the case and continues to vent about it to Rosalio. Here is a text exchange between the two. So now I have to lock my shit up before I bounce my house? Babe, I'm getting really annoyed. He wants you to get fed up enough to walk away from me. Rosalio leads Sadie to believe that he wants a future with her, but he is obviously still exploring other relationships with other women. We get the idea that both Sadie and Rosalio are keeping their options open. On May 14th, just three days before Rosalio goes missing, Rosalio's bank records show that he withdrew $700 from his shared bank account with his mom. The next day, he withdrew $300 more for a total of $1,000. These would be his last transaction and money that is unaccounted for when his wallet is eventually discovered, though some of his friends on Facebook mentioned seeing him out and about that weekend at various stores and restaurants. While Rosalio is out and about withdrawing money and doing whatever, Sadie continues to make reference to Zach tracking her. In episode one, we already mentioned she had texted Zach telling him to stop following her, and he didn't seem to know what she was talking about. She then texts her friend Rebecca, stating that she believes Zach was hacking into her phone because their daughter said he hacked into her school computer. As a parent myself, I could understand going into your child's school computer to make sure they're doing what they're supposed to, especially considering this is still mid-COVID breakout, and most schools were mostly virtual at this time. I'm not sure why Sadie would automatically then assume he was hacking her phone as a result of that conversation. How would he even have access to her phone to do that? She tells Rebecca that the only problem is that she can't prove it. Following this, the two share a very odd text exchange. Phone call has been placed. All I was told is it will be again, and you will not know when, where, or how. Call me in one week. It will begin. This was then followed by a 19-minute phone conversation between the two. Rebecca testified that this message exchange was a cryptic attempt at coordinating for her son to check Sadie's phone for something that would indicate that Zach was tracking her. All I was told was it will be again. That's what I was told. And then I say you will not know where... Or how, call me in a week. That's my text message. So what did you mean to Sadie then when you told her you will not know 
when, where, or how? I don't know. I was being cryptic in the fact that I thought Zach was actually able to read her messages at that point. So you don't know what you meant by this text then? I know what I meant by it, but and it's basically saying it'll be a week and you can get it, it's to her. So at any point, did you get Sadie's phone? No, I already told Seth that nothing happened. I already said that nothing came of it. But when you texted her, you didn't tell her that someone would need her phone. I didn't have to tell her that at that point. So you're thinking that Miss Beecham knew what your cryptic text meant? No, I didn't think that she knew what it meant. You can answer. I just did. I said no. I didn't know for sure that she needed to know at that point. When did you talk to law enforcement about this text? I didn't talk to them until recently. When you say recently, was this a week ago, two weeks ago? Oh, two weeks ago. Two weeks ago. Yeah, Prior to two weeks ago, um, had law enforcement ever talked to you? Not about this. No. What on Sadie's phone could even show that? And why didn't anyone talk to Rebecca's son to verify all of this? The interesting thing is that Rebecca wasn't even going to be a trial witness until the defense brought up these messages as being very suspicious, especially considering Rosalia goes missing less than a week later. Could this have actually been some sort of reference to a hit being placed on either Zach or Rosalio? This was exactly how the district attorney himself interpreted those texts when he was arguing about why the defense shouldn't be able to call into question the suspiciousness of other parties. Or was this possibly just another attempt to create the illusion of stalking by planning something within the week so they could use it to prove the stalking? The phrase, you won't know when, where, or how is an odd choice of words if you are trying to plan something specific, such as asking your son to check the phone for spyware, especially if it involves needing the physical object to do so. Wouldn't they need to coordinate the when, where, and how he was going to check Sadie's phone? And why would she tell Sadie to call her in one week when they talk every day? The whole thing just didn't make sense at all. And I have to admit, I have a really hard time believing Rebecca's testimony on this. Not only was her message cryptic, but her testimony about it came across as nonspecific and evasive. In Solomon Anderson's initial statement to police, he mentioned that Sadie had previously threatened to send members of an unknown biker gang after Zach. Is this somehow playing a part here? I can't say for sure what that message thread was about, but what is clear is that the conversation should have been explored more by police. A person cryptically saying that they've placed a phone call for something unknown to happen within a week, followed by the disappearance of someone close to them, should have rung some major alarm bells. When Rebecca was finally interviewed about this, it was only two weeks before the trial because the state wanted to counter the defense's argument that other parties involved should have been investigated more thoroughly. As we close in on the proposed date and time of Rosalio's disappearance, we want you to pay careful attention to the times that some of the involved parties are coming and going. I highly recommend taking notes if you're inclined, because this is where things start to get a little convoluted as far as Rosalio's last known activities. On Friday, May 15th, phone records show Rosalio contacted his boss, Eileen, about his work schedule for the following Monday at one of her units. He also texts Michael Campbell asking if he wanted him to come over and pay him before picking up his son for the weekend. Campbell responded, no, that's okay, I can wait. Campbell would claim that Rosalio and his kids would come over for a pizza party sometime that weekend. From the sound of Rosalio and Campbell's texts on Friday, it doesn't sound like that happened that evening. 
since Campbell had told him that he could wait. Eileen told police that she had last seen Rosalio on May 15th around 10 p.m. when he was helping her work on her sink. Interestingly, we did also find a Facebook comment where someone said they saw Rosalio at their food truck that evening with a girl that looked mixed. And he said he had to go home to eat his food and drink some Coronas. So could he and Michael Campbell have met up on Saturday, May 16th? We do know that on Saturday, Rosalio took his son to Dick's Sporting Goods to buy baseball equipment. He texts this to Sadie in the following text exchange. We are at Dick's buying cleats and slides for baseball. $226 later. Whoa, those are some expensive slides, lol. They turned into bats and cleats. <laughs> he then invited Sadie over to his place, where she would meet his kids for the first time. They had dinner and got ice cream, and then she said she left his house between 11.30 p.m. and 12 a.m. She stated she never saw or met Michael Campbell, which means he wasn't there at least while Sadie was over. Katie Dill, one of Rosalio's ex-girlfriends, also told police in her statement that she last saw Rosalio at her house sometime on the 16th as well. So, did Rosalio and Michael have this pizza party Friday between the times he met up with the women he was supposedly with, or was it early in the day on Saturday sometime between these two women? Either way, Campbell could not remember when the event took place when questioned in the trial, even though his immediate statement to police indicated it was either Friday or Saturday. So after that Friday... Friday at 6.05, do you think you saw him sometime that weekend, for instance? It's possible, yes. Okay. Um, and you have any memory of, of, of believing that you saw him sometime that weekend? Um, I don't have a memory, but it, uh, like I said, it's possible that I could have seen him, yes. Did you give a statement to law enforcement back on May 20th, 2020? Yes. So that was only... That was literally the day after you had uh, been over to the crime scene. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. That was very recent in terms of uh, us talking about the weekend of May 16th and 17th, just a couple days before. Yeah. All right. If I showed you that uh, statement that you gave law enforcement, would that possibly refresh your memory of whether um, you saw Rosalio uh, that um, uh, on either uh, sometime that weekend? Yeah. Okay. Right there, if you could read those next couple of sentences to yourself, okay? Have you read those? Yes. Does that refresh your memory about whether you saw Rosalio Gutierrez sometime that same weekend of the 15th, 16th, 17th of May 2001? Yes. So now having had your memory refreshed, uh, approximately when do you think you saw him and in what context how what do you what do you know about it? um it was either you know friday or saturday when we had pizza all the kids together and do you believe that was at rosalio gutierrez's house or your house my house at 1.46 a.m. on Sunday, May 17th, which would have been following Sadie leaving Rosalio's apartment, Michael Campbell's phone pings at Rosalio's. Campbell testifies that he can't remember being there or why, and that this was not connected to the pizza party he had mentioned. There is also no record of him calling or texting Rosalio that he was coming over. This testimony stood out when researching the case, not so much in that he dropped by without contacting Rosalio, but that he didn't remember it. So what were you doing at Mr. Gutierrez's apartment on May 17th, 2020? Like I said, I could have went over there, had some beers with him. You know, if he had a job that I had to go somewhere different, maybe I needed some tools that he had or vice versa. 
But would you have gone there without texting him first? Jackson calls for speculation. What, it's this own witness. He... Well, I don't know. Uh, you could ask him whether he did or not, but you're asking whether he would have done so, which is you're really asking what what he might have done, which is, isn't, well, it's irrelevant. If you, before you go to Mr. Gutierrez, you've been to Mr. Gutierrez's apartment before. Correct. Normally when you go, do you text or call him and let him know you'll be coming by? Same Not all the time. Hold on. Hold on. Same objection. This is what, what he normally uh, does. It's not uh, asking it's, would it's, he. Uh, it's habit evidence, Judge. Well, and there are limitations on that, but uh, he can answer. Say it again. And what she's asking is whether you would typically uh, contact him beforehand that you were found. I think that's what she's asking. Yes. Yeah, normally I would, yeah. And, um, but you hadn't texted him on the 17th or called him and told him you that you were coming, correct? I guess not. Considering this would have been the last contact he ever had with Rosalio, it seems like it would stick out more in his mind. Had he had too much to drink that night and perhaps that's why he didn't remember? Or was it something else? Zach was also finishing up work for the week. He was in the process of doing a demo of a home owned by Susan Brown Williamson. She testified that he would use trash bags to clean up the demo debris and he would transport it in his van back to his home where he had a dumpster and burn pit to dispose of it. She testified that she last saw Zach on May 15th and his van had the seats and carpet removed. Mr. Anderson was doing um, demo on your house and you had mentioned something about him um, taking the debris back to his house? Yes. And do you know how he would do that? He would use my trailer, an aluminum utility trailer, and he would use um, an old minivan that he had. Um, he took all the the seats and carpet and stuff out of it and was just using it like in lieu of a pickup truck, but he had a minivan, so he put all the stuff in there. Did you say that he took the carpet out? It was an old vehicle that was gutted, and then he used it to haul stuff from my, you know, that the dirty lath and plaster and and all of the stuff that he was finding in the walls. And did, to your knowledge, would he use trash bags to put the demo, the lath, the plaster in? Yeah, he used um, big black trash bags and some trash cans from my property and probably some of his own trash cans. And then he would put it in the back of his van and then transport it back to his house because he had a dumpster there? Yes. This information will be important to remember for when the investigation takes place. Zach would have a bonfire that Friday night with his friend Andrew, who stayed the night. Andrew didn't notice anything out of the ordinary. Zach then had custody of his kids over the weekend, and they would spend the time working on his family's Christmas tree farm. That brings us to Sunday, May 17th, the day Rosalia would go missing, and the day that prosecutors would believe he was murdered. At 12.52 p.m. that day, Sadie and Rosalio text each other about her meeting his kids the night before. Sadie thanks him for having her over, and they both express that they were happy his kids were able to meet. Are you okay? Yeah, good. Why you ask? Just checking in, babe. That's twice now. You having second thoughts of us? No, not at all. I was actually thinking about us a lot today. What about us? 
I think we could have a lot of fun, all of us, and I think our kids would get along great, and I think I want you to be my person for a while, like hopefully for a long while. Rosalio hearts the last message from Sadie. I think it's going to be a challenge, of course, but I think we could survive. I hope, anyways. Rosalio then replies, this rain is crazy, remarking on the rainy Wisconsin weather. Sadie later arrives at Zach's house around 5.13 p.m. to pick up the kids, and Rosalio starts communicating with Nareda, one of the other girls he was talking to, and begins to make plans to get together with her. The following is a text exchange between the two. What are your plans for tonight? Nada. Check my emails. Would you be interested in meeting up? It is late and a Sunday, so I won't be heard if you don't want to. I would totally understand, but I would like to meet you. Of course. Me too. That would be awesome. What's a good time? Really? That's great. Meanwhile, Zach and his girlfriend Christine are communicating about getting together that night. She expresses a desire to watch Alice in Wonderland. Rosalio continues making plans with Nareda. I just jumped out the shower and going to feed the kiddos before I take them home. So probably around 8.39. Is that too late? What town you live at? Kenosha. What's open around by you? All the Kenosha bars are open, while well, they were yesterday. We are not going to a bar. You are welcome to come over if you are comfortable with that. That's dangerous. Promise I'm not a creeper, lol. Okay, do me a fave. Look up construction in I-94. I thought heard they close by 9pm. Find out. I know on the way back you will be able to get on at the Highway 20 intersection. Okay, I'm a shower now. I just got out of work. Give me around 8 p.m. No worries. Take your time. Still have to drop off my daughter, and she lives 45 minutes away. Okay. 8.30 or 9? Nine? 9 will be safer. Okay. I don't think you're creepy. Good, because I'm not. You have a daughter. Exactly. She's my everything. And I'm sure you wouldn't want anyone to hurt her. Zach's phone continues to ping around the area of his home through 7.34 p.m., the phone shows a couple of missed calls at this time, and Zach states that he fell asleep after being tired from having his kids all weekend and working at the tree farm. At 7.30 p.m., Michael Campbell and his girlfriend Erica have dinner delivered to their house. Although police did not investigate Michael, despite him interfering in their investigation and trespassing on Zach's property, he provided this as an alibi in the trial because the defense filed a motion requesting to point him as another potential culprit in Rosalio's disappearance. Their motion was ultimately denied, which we'll discuss in a later episode, and they were not allowed to bring in all the information gathered. At 7.40 p.m., Rosalio drops off his son with his ex, Christy. Her house is approximately three minutes from Rosalio's apartment. He then makes his way over to Kayla's house to drop off his daughter. At 8.05 p.m., Rosalio texts Nareda, how far do you live from me? She sends him back a screenshot of Apple Maps, showing an arrival of 19 minutes from her location to an address in Milwaukee. Rosalio tells her that she has the wrong address. His address is the same one, however, in Kenosha, not Milwaukee. He then gives her his address again, and she then texts him a screenshot of Apple Maps with the correct address and a drive time of 37 minutes. Rosalio also texts Nareda asking if she wants him to pick up anything to drink. He tells her what he has at his place, and she replies back that beer is okay, but then changes to water, saying she doesn't want to get a DUI. At 8.20 p.m., Rosalio arrives at Kayla's house to drop off his daughter. Kayla testifies he stays for a couple minutes and she remembers him wearing athletic pants, glasses, and a hat. 
Rosalio texts Nareda, letting her know that his GPS shows he should be home at 9.01 p.m. Nareda tells him that she will start leaving her house at 8.24 p.m. If she in fact meant that she was leaving within minutes, that should put her to Rosalio's apartment around the same time that he is due to arrive. The following is Nareda's testimony regarding the plan to meet up. My plan was just to sit outside, maybe in the car, and just get to know each other. So his plan was for you to come in, but your plan was for him to come out? Correct. So what plan did you make that you solidified of what would happen when you arrived there at 9 p.m.? What plan did I make? I'm sorry, what, could you repeat that question? You just testified, previously you testified that the plan was he was going to come out and you guys were going to go for a ride together. Just now you testified that he wanted the plan, the plan according to him, was that you were going to come inside. I, I'm saying I'm thinking maybe he wanted me to come in. I don't know what was he thinking, but I can tell you that my plan was for him to come out. I don't know if he was... Okay, so that was just your plan. That right. wasn't something that you guys discussed and agreed on? No, not at all. Okay, so you didn't discuss that when you had the phone call with him earlier then? We just planned to just meet up with each other. That was the plan. At 9 p.m.? Yes. At 8.27 p.m., Rosalio texts Sadie. Just dropped off my daughter. Going over to Mike's for a little bit. Okay, cool. Maybe text me or ring me when you leave there or something. Okay. At 8.44 p.m., presumably on his way home, Rosalio has a short phone call with another girl he was talking to, Kim. According to Kim's testimony, he told her he had just taken a friend shopping and he needed to drop off his kids to go to Maynard's, but he would call later. At 8.45 p.m. and 8.47 p.m., Zach receives two more unanswered phone calls. We know that Rosalio returned home around 9 p.m. In photos of Rosalio's kitchen, there was a bag of limes and a cutting board, and there were cut-up limes and two Corona bottle caps. There was also an empty Corona bottle in the trash. There was also a partially full Corona bottle in the living room with a lime in it. Now, do we think Rosalio had started drinking prior to driving his kids home? It would make much more sense that he would have done that when he arrived home. It looks like he had enough time to cut up some limes and start drinking in preparation for his date with Nareda, which, if you remember, they had discussed what they wanted to drink. According to a witness testimony from one of Rosalio's neighbor, Lene Douglas, sometime around 9 p.m., she claims that she heard a scream in the hallway outside of Rosalio's apartment. When she heard at approximately 9 p.m. a scream in the hallway by 1B, she described the scream, the scream as high, as if someone was in pain and surprised. Although, it should be mentioned that Lene's original statement was vastly different. Originally, she stated she heard arguing inside Rosalio's apartment the next day on May 18th around 1 o'clock p.m. After speaking with the prosecutor, she changed her statement and made herself unavailable to questioning by the defense. The defense attempted to get a warrant for her appearance, but the judge denied it, so she did not show up to testify in trial. We don't know exactly what time Lene was now referencing, but we do know that Rosalio and Nareda were supposed to be meeting at that time, based on when she said she was starting her drive. However, Nareda doesn't text about her impending arrival until she is nearly 45 minutes late at 9.37 p.m. Five men away. At 9.43 p.m. I'm here. At 9.44 p.m. Where do I park? At 9.52 p.m. Are you okay? In the following testimony, one of Rosalio's neighbors testified to hearing something around this time. Of 2020, 
where they asked you, did you hear or see anything on the on the days preceding that that caused you some sort of concern from the downstairs apartment? Yes. And what, if anything, do you recall telling law enforcement about your observations that um, that they were asking about? Um, just hearing loud banging, like against the wall. And was this specifically on a, uh, did you have a specific night that you had heard this? Uh, it was a Sunday night. So that would be May 17th? Yes. And when you heard this, uh, approximately what time was it, if you recall? Uh, between 10 and 11. So just a couple of follow-up questions. This, this banging or the sound that you heard, you said in between 10 and 11. Do you remember if it was closer to 11? Do you have a more specific time? I would say closer to 10, like a little after 10. At 10.05 p.m., Nareda, who is still waiting in her car, texts Rosalio again. I'm worried about you. Are you okay? All of these text messages would remain unread. She claims that as she waited for his response, she moved her car four different times to different parking spots. At 10.10 p.m., Rosalio's phone shows its last activity, which is when the phone orientation changes from portrait to landscape, which ends at 10.44 p.m. Police will state that they believe this is when the phone battery ran out and turned off. Finally, at 10.18 p.m., Nareda texts Rosalio that she left after waiting in her car for 35 minutes. She did not try to knock on his door. Nareda's story is a little puzzling. She does not give an explanation as to why she showed up at Rosalio's apartment almost 45 minutes late, with no prior call or text to him saying she was running late. There were no calls or texts from Rosalio to her asking where she was. So, what if Nareda didn't actually arrive late? How do we know she didn't get there at 9pm when she was supposed to, and then text him after the fact to cover her tracks? That would almost make the most sense given that there's no correspondence between the two about her being late. It's also weird that her response to possibly getting blown off by a date right in front of his home is, are you okay? If she had arrived exactly when she was supposed to at 9 p.m., she would have been there around the same time that the scream was allegedly heard and the murder allegedly took place. We have heard many instances where women are used as decoys on apps like Facebook dating to lure a man into a situation where he can be robbed by armed men that show up instead. Although this was their first time meeting, Nareda had declined his offer to meet at her place or somewhere public. She instead asked him for his address and told him she would go there. Could this have been a planned attack and robbery by Nareda and people she knew? One possible scenario is that she did enter Rosalio's apartment that night and perhaps while he was in the bathroom, let the attackers in through the patio door. Then, once the attack was over, she texts him every few minutes to start the alibi. The interesting thing is that she told him she wanted water to drink, and there was an open water bottle found in the living room. However, in order to build the timeline for this night, it's important to remember the time Nareda should have arrived, the time she might have arrived, and also the time she texts that she left. The prosecutors claimed that the murder happened shortly after 10 p.m., so she would have been right outside the whole time. Their theory was built on when Rosalio's phone orientation changed, the unread text, and when a neighbor reported hearing a noise. But at 11.19 p.m., Zach's phone resumes activity when he texts his girlfriend Christine saying, Sorry, I fell asleep. So if Zach had committed the murder as suggested and moved the phone by 10.10 p.m., he had only one hour and nine minutes to leave the crime scene and return home by 11.19 where his phone pings. Even if he had managed to somehow remove the body undetected, 
The drive time from Rosalio's apartment to Zach's home is a little over an hour. However, there was construction at the time, and another thing to know is that there are anywhere between 33 and 45 traffic cameras on the major highways. Zach was not seen on any of them. So if Zach were to have committed the crime like they said, he would have needed to take a different route to avoid these cameras. The fastest route avoiding these highway cameras is an hour and 24 minutes, which would have put Zach home later than 1119. Except police officers reviewed camera footage from many gas stations, schools, home surveillance cameras along the most obvious routes, even on the back roads, and still did not see Zach or his van on a single one. Plus, we know from Nareda's testimony, people were coming and going from the apartment buildings, and visibility was clear enough that she could describe who she saw, and she herself would have been in the parking lot when the body was removed. So how does Zach carry out a body and drive an hour-plus home totally undetected? The timeline doesn't work at all. The state presumed that, that, the, that the murder was committed at about 10 p.m. on May the 17th. My brother had to be home by, by 11.19 that same night. The time to travel from Kenosha to my brother's house using the freeway at the time was an hour and like nine minutes. How is it possible for him to have wrapped this up in, in, in about 10 minutes and, and commit this crime and make it all the way back to Mequon without ever being seen on any traffic camera. You have an unrealistic amount of time for him to have committed this crime, clean up, wrap up a corpse. You know how much time it takes to wrap up carpeting, to, to wrap it all up, to contain dripping blood and all this? I, I was a contractor for 10 years just wrapping up carpeting, trying to maintain a, a, a mess of drywall is going to take you more time, especially with an unwieldy 270 to 300 pound weight. It's not physically possible. My brother had a bad back, has a bad back. It still aggravates him. If he were to lift a 270 to 300 pound weight, shoulder it and walk it outside and put it in the back of his van, he would have been laid up in bed, bed bound for days without question. There's no question he would have aggravated his injury. Could Zach have gone back and removed the body later? Evidence proves this is not feasible. His phone records on the following day do not put him in that area and instead put him in the area of where he was working at Susan's house and his home. Phone records show that Zach searched for store hours of several home improvement stores early the next morning. Many people thought this was strange behavior. However, Zach had a day of work ahead of him, and with COVID affecting many business hours, it would make sense for him to want to research this before heading out. He had also claimed to have napped the previous night, which would have made him able to start an earlier morning. He would go to Walmart around 8 a.m. on Monday, where he spent just over half an hour buying some items. The items he purchased included Q-tips, Old Spice, shampoo, a shaver, two boxes of kitchen-sized 13-gallon garbage bags, disposable gloves, three cans of sardines, and some Clorox wipes. He would then go to his work site in Belgium, Wisconsin, where he was being paid to do demolition work on a house. At some point on the 18th, Zach also went to go pick up his taxes from his accountant in Menominee Falls and eventually met back up with Christine. All of these activities would be confirmed by his phone's location and the testimony of others. Let's now check in with what other main characters in this case were up to on Monday, May 18th as well. According to reports, Michael Campbell had removed a roll of carpet from a job site and loaded it into the back of his trailer to dispose of at the dump. The following is testimony relating to a conversation he had with an acquaintance about this carpet. Did you have around May 19th, 2020, a rolled up carpet in your trailer? I'm sure, yeah. 
And do you remember a time where John Hunt asked you if he could have that carpet? I don't remember when, what time it was uh, that he had asked me, but I told him no because the houses that we worked on were obviously terrible. So why would he want carpet that was probably saturated in dog urine? So yeah, I told him no, he can't have it. Do you remember what date that interaction occurred? No. And um, do you remember telling Mr. Hunt that you were gonna be taking it to the dump? What else would I do with it? Well, I'm asking just, you. You could just yeah, answer the question. Yeah, of course took it to the dump. Okay, and did you take it to Pheasant Run? No. Didn't you tell um, Mr. Hunt that you were going to take it to Pheasant Run? I told him I was taking it to the dump. Michael would deny visiting Pheasant Run Landfill, but his phone would ping nearby. Also, according to the same acquaintance, John Hunt, Michael was last seen clean-shaven around the time of Rosalio's disappearance, something that was out of the norm for him. He normally kept a completely bald head and a beard. A police officer that saw Michael Campbell at Zach's house on May 19th described him as having short stubble on his head, which would indicate that he had a day or two to let the beard start growing back if he had indeed shaved it. Early that same morning, Sadie texts her friend Rebecca asking if she was home, saying she needed to grab the phone. What phone is she referring to? Did this have anything to do with their earlier conversation about Rebecca's son and his doing something to a phone to show Zach was tracking her? At this point, there's still no proof as to when Sadie may have returned Zach's phone to him, including after finding it in the car. So could that be the phone? Sadie also texts Rosalio, Hey you, another rainy day. Hope your day's going great. Sadie starts getting concerned when she doesn't hear anything back from Rosalio. She texts Rebecca about how worried she is and states that she hasn't heard from Zach either. She mentions that she wonders if he checked his mail yet, specifically referring to the custody paper she filed. Rebecca asks Sadie if she thought Zach would have done anything. It's kind of a strange jump in thinking. Also, no word from Leo today. That's weird. Maybe he forgot his phone. No word from Zach either. That scares me. Have you let Leo know that you just want him to check in? I wonder if he got his mail yet. Yep, and no word. Has he been active on Facebook at all? Don't know. I'm a little sick. Leo usually checks in, or I guess on me. Nope, not since yesterday. He texts saying he just dropped off his kid and was going to his buddy's house. Thinking maybe he forgot his phone or something. I don't know. Kind of weird, though. Okay, so hopefully he just forgot his phone. Do you think Zach would do some shit? Dunno. He's capable of anything. Right, that's just it. Did you mail that shit? Yep, it was expected to arrive today. Oh boy, well, whatever you do, please keep in contact with me. Even just a hi if I text you through the night. At this point, it's been less than 24 hours since she last heard from Rosalio, but she immediately jumps to a conclusion that Zach has done something. Since Rosalio didn't seem to reciprocate her feelings in her text on the 17th and then change the subject to the weather, wouldn't she think he may just decide to be done with their relationship? That would seem like the logical conclusion. Plus, Zach was already aware that she was filing for custody, so why would receiving notice in the mail be a surprise to him? Zach was also in the process of filing his own paperwork. This conversation seems very weird, especially when Rebecca said that she talked cryptic to Sadie because she believed Zach was monitoring her text. This doesn't sound very cryptic. 
It seems like she is vague about certain things that they are doing that could reflect badly on her, but very transparent about making Zach look bad and very quick to point the finger at him every turn. At 5.21 p.m., Sadie calls Rosalio and it goes straight to voicemail. She then texts him, Babe, everything okay? Haven't heard from you all day. Just let me know you're okay. She then texts Rebecca the following. Well, it's been 24 hours since I last heard from him. He's either lost his phone, something's wrong, or he's ignoring blocking me. His phone goes straight to voicemail. Leo? Yep. Was he upset with you? What about Nutcase? Hear from him at all? Zach sent me a text about an hour ago of a license plate that said, Got Twins. Weird. So it sounds like at this point, she's clearly heard from Zach, and it isn't something nefarious that would make her think that something is off with him. He texts her a picture of a license plate that says, Got Twins. They do have twins together, so why is she saying this is weird? Rebecca and Sadie talk on the phone for 36 minutes. Sadie calls Rosalio again. Nareda also texts Rosalio saying, I hope you're okay. I haven't heard back from you. I prayed for you. I just don't understand why everyone in Rosalio's life seems to be overly concerned about his well-being in less than 24 hours. I could probably not answer my friend's text for two weeks and none would think anything of it. Are either of them asking if he's okay because at this point they know something bad has happened to him? Or are they asking if he's okay and praying for him because they know he's involved in something risky? Oddly, despite being extremely worried about Rosalio's well-being and speculating about whether Zach had done something to him, Sadie sends a very calm email to Zach about coordinating visitation and holidays for the kids. She also mentions a bonfire that Zach is having at his house that weekend. The email is cordial and shows no indication of fear or hesitancy in communication. In fact, she states that she hopes to enjoy the holidays together with their kids. Sadie calls Rosalio again on Facebook Messenger. After once again not reaching Rosalio, she then texts Rebecca saying, I feel sick. I have a terrible feeling. My anxiety is soaring right now. They continue to text about it and worry that Zach is the reason they haven't heard from him. Sadie may have been valid in her concerns, especially since Rosalio did end up to be found to be missing. But given the information she had, it seems she had come to the conclusion something was wrong very early on. She also quickly assumed that Zach had something to do with Rosalio not speaking to her, despite no indication so far that Zach wanted to harm him. From what we know of their relationship, there isn't any evidence that Zach was a violent person. He had also not made any threats towards her or Rosalio and had even previously offered to watch the kids so she could spend time with him after she returned from Mexico. Sadie was still seemingly leading him on at times, while simultaneously accusing him of stalking her, despite having no concrete proof of this, which she herself admitted. It just seems like she jumped the gun here on accusing Zach of being involved. Sadie would decide to take off work and drive to Rosalio's apartment the following day to do a wellness check. While on the phone with Rebecca, she would arrive around 11 a.m. What she saw would cause her to call 911. Can I ask you 911 with the address for emergency? Um, let's see. The address is... Oh, gosh. Sorry. I should know this. Um, it's... Sorry, or actually, I shouldn't know it. Uh, so I um, was doing a wellness check on uh, a, a good friend of mine um, that I was dating, and... Uh, and I found it weird because I haven't talked to him for like 24 hours. And um, I just went to his house and his screen door is wide open. Okay. And I knocked on the door and I saw something like scattered on the outside of the outside door. And then I just, you know, I kept calling his name and knocking on the windows and knocking on the doors. And the screen door is like wide open. And I just pulled the, um, the, the um, 
Okay, so were you able to see inside? Yeah, I pulled the blinds back, and there's blood all over the floor in the living room. And Did I you see him at all anywhere? I didn't go any further. Okay, okay. Evan, what's his name? Uh, Rosalio Gutierrez. Next time on Wrongful, following Sadie's 911 call, we'll see how the investigation played out, both on the part of the police and others who inserted themselves into the investigation. We will see what the police found at the scene, who they looked into, and what they searched. One thing is clear, Zach's name would be mentioned immediately. I want to take a moment to thank and acknowledge all of the people who make Wrongful possible. Alicia, our scriptwriter, Ashley, our social media person, and Kayla, who does our advertising and marketing. Bye, everyone, and thanks for listening. If you like what you heard and want to catch our next episode, please make sure to follow Wrongful on all of your favorite podcast platforms, and don't forget to rate us. We would also love it if you would follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and X under Wrongful Pod. Keep the fun going in between episodes by joining our Wrongful Podcast group on Facebook to see evidence, discuss episodes, and more.